Well, let's think about a well-known sentence from this word that Pastor Bill just read to us. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many times have you heard politicians quote this verse? Or maybe you were watching a, a film, and in, in, a, in a key moment or in the wrap-up, that verse pops up on the screen or in someone's, in, in someone's mouth. Now, now, how many times do you think that you have heard this verse totally taken out of context? Well, let's look at it again here, uh, John chapter 8, verse 31 through 32, and, and I hope this morning that, that the Lord will help us clearly see what it means for His truth to set us free. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed Him, if you abide in My Word, you are truly My disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This message this morning has two components, two parts. Uh, if you're following along in, your, in the worship guide, which is in, the, uh, in your bulletin, you'll, you'll see a blank for a part one and a blank for part two, and I'll, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the answers right now, kids, and that is the condition and the promise. So let's, let's start with the first one, the condition of these promises that Jesus made was clear. These six words, if you abide in my word. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, let's talk about the meaning of that word abide. We, we sung about it already this morning. We, we talked about dependence. But how would, you, how would you define the word abide? What other words come to mind? Living together, living with someone, okay, so a relational aspect. I, I heard you mouth something, Chris. Dwell. To dwell, all right, to live in. I think I heard the word depend, and there's certainly uh, an idea here of, of depending, right? Living in, uh, trusting in, even endurance, right? Not quitting, abiding, keeping up, right? Um, well, let's, let's, let's think about another place that we've heard that word used, John 15, 4. That's a, that's a verse that maybe you've got in your kitchen, right? Where Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So Jesus uses that word three times in that famous verse. And here's my favorite definition of abide. You ready for it? It's to hold on and to never let go. And maybe that needs to be something that, that, uh, that you tell your spouse today. I promised you that I would abide. We didn't use that, we don't use that word necessarily in our vows, but we say until death do we part. These things I will do. I will hold on to you and I will never let go. Now, now here this idea, of course, isn't to an equal, to a peer, but to our Savior. And, and so there is that intrinsic um, understanding of dependence. I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't save myself. 
And frankly, I can't live one day of my Christian life in a way that pleases you by my own strength. I need you. I'm going to hold on to you. One, one pastor said, anyone can follow Jesus for a day, but a genuine believer will follow him for a lifetime. He or she will hold tightly to his words and never let go. Well, let me talk to, uh, for a moment to college students. Maybe you're about to go off to school. Maybe you have already, and you're back for the summer. We got to hear, we got to hear last, last week from several of our college students who went away about their experiences. But how are you going to act when you are surrounded by non-believers in Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? And, and do you love him above all else such that you will be, to be able to go against a very, very powerful flow, a very strong stream of, of pressure that will be on you from others, right? Are you anchored in Jesus? Do you have a real relationship with him? Are you abiding in Jesus? What Jesus is saying here is no matter what the pressure, no matter what direction everybody else is going, no matter even what, how people may be threatening you or trying to entice you, He's saying, stick with me. Stick with me. The NIV translates these six words in verse 31. If you hold to my teaching. I think that's a good translation of that word, abide. Hold on and never let go. So Jesus here is is telling a group of wannabe disciples. And I'm going to let Pastor Bill explain this to you more fully next week, okay, because it's quite interesting as, you, as we hear this back and flow of this group. Um, there, there, we read actually in verse 30 of our, of our sermon last week text, as he was saying these things, many in the group believed in him, right? But sometimes when John says believed, what he means is watch them and let's see if this is real faith or not, right? And so later, Jesus tells uh, th- this group of people, you have your father, the devil. So there may have been some in the group who were sincere, because here he says, if you hold on to me, abide in my word, you will truly be my disciples. So some in this group may have been sincere, and others were, were fair weather. And I'll let Pastor Bill let you know more specifically next week, as, as he gets into the, that great text, you have your father, the devil. Jesus said that. That's not quoted as much in movies as, as you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, right? Well, Jesus is telling a group of wannabe disciples to carefully listen to and obey his teaching. And, and you might think, well, that, that would be easy enough for them. These, these people saw his miracles, right? It would have been easy to, to hang on every word. And, and maybe for us, it's not as easy right? We don't see Jesus. We don't, we don't get to hear his teaching. But you know what? He's given us his word. The, the Holy Spirit has preserved what we need from what Jesus taught and his examples in a, in a marvelous way that we can pick up and read. And he's given us his word such that we have something that they didn't. We have the entire word of God, the revelation of God for us today, right here, written down. And so I I hope 
that we will abide in his word. Well, what does that mean for us today to abide in his word? Well, it means that we must elevate his revealed truth over our subjective experience. You know, many churches today elevate subjective experience, right? How you're feeling about God over revealed truth. And so we, we are quick and sadly apt to remake God into our own image, our own imagination, and, and so we'll serve him because in a way we're, we're trying to make him serve us and we elevate that experience. And so if God told me this, who are you to say otherwise? Well, test everything with the word. We've got to elevate revealed truth over personal feelings and subjective experience. Now, now I hope we'll have both. And I hope your subjective experience will match and, and come from his spirit working powerfully in your life through his word. But 2 Timothy 4.3 warns, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We've got to make sure that we not try to master the Word of God, but that we are continually mastered by the Word of God. And so there's a, there's a warning here, not just to folks in, maybe you can think of another church you want to criticize, there's a warning for us here. Theologians, wannabe theologians, Watch out. Make sure that, that when you read Scripture, you don't shoehorn texts into your own theological paradigm. That, that's the, the danger of, of an over-focus on what I'll call systematic theology. All right? Some of you, don't, don't, don't let me lose you here. Everybody has a systematic theology. Everybody, every one of you is a systematic theologian. You have a system. You have, a, you have categories in which you think about God and you think about His Word. And so be very careful when you're reading Scripture and you're going through it, and if you read something that doesn't jive with your systematic theology, don't just ignore that verse and say, well, it can't mean that, right? You've got to be mastered by the Word of God. That means you've got to take it deeper and study. And you know what? There may be some of your system that needs to be reworked because this is our authority. We must be careful not to shoehorn texts into our theological paradigms. Creeds are helpful, but it's sola scriptura, not sola crede. But you know, others need to watch out. Uh, let's say progressive activists, watch out. I don't know if any of you are progressives, um, but make sure that you never take things out of context to make them say what you want. Make sure that you never are given to that temptation to explain away texts that you don't like, things that might be politically incorrect. And that's, that's, that's happening left and right, where, well, <laughs> this can't really mean that, because this doesn't jive with what society says. We must make sure we never try to master God's Word that we are constantly seeking to submit to and be mastered by His revealed truth. But how do we abide in His Word practically every day and every week? Well, you'll see a few more blanks in your sermon notes, um, and, and I've got three things for you here, and you might be able to think of some more. But the first is, you need to read the Bible. Read 
the Bible every day. Jesus said to Satan in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so we need to live in the word. And I wanna encourage you in the morning, before you, your mind gets saturated with all the noise that we live with, because we live, I think, with more noise than anyone ever has in human history, right? Courtesy of our iPhones and, and all the media, the, the radio we turn on. They're just, you know, within 15 minutes, it's incredible the amount of data that your mind has to sift through, the weather and texts and emails and social media, right? And maybe the news that you've checked the headlines, and if you got all that in your mind before you open the word, um, you, there, there can, it can be harder to just abide in him. So create some space, find a time daily where, and I recommend the morning, but for you there may be another time in your day where you shut everything else off and you firewall it and you spend some time reading his word. Immerse yourself in the Bible and don't just read a chapter to legalistically get through it. And then, all right, now I can move on, but meditate on its meaning. Joshua 1.8 says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Well, don't just read the Bible, but obey it. That's number two, obey it. Joshua 1.8 continues, you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. 1 John 2.6 says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So he's already shown us the way. We've got to read his word and then follow it, obey it. And if we're gonna abide in him, it means action. It means obedience, right? But I've got a third blank for you. Uh, it's not enough just to, just to read and obey, but, but I hope you will treasure it. That you will treasure God's word. And you know, many of our brothers and sisters who live in countries where it's, they're, they're not free to gather and worship the Lord, or maybe where the Bible is even banned, they can teach us a thing or two about treasuring the Word of God. I've, I've heard stories of, of Christians locked up because, because of their faith. And maybe they had just a scrap of paper where they had written everything they had memorized. Um, or, or maybe someone had smuggled them in just a few pages of the Bible and they, they treasured it. Well, we can treasure His Word as well. Psalm 19 verse seven says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Boy, that's what I hope happens when you open the word and you start meditating on it and, and, and confessing sin and resolving to obey and, and treasuring. I, I pray that your soul will be revived. The, the law of the Lord revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Meaning, may, maybe you can't figure everything out, you don't understand everything, but the Holy Spirit through his word gives you Gives you wisdom, not just knowledge, but wisdom. ABF1 talked about that this morning. That the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, giving, giving your eyes, the, the, those window, the windows to your soul, light. 
The fear of the Lord is clean. That's like the motivation, right, for wisdom. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Even much fine gold, or maybe the stuff that it could buy, okay? Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the, can- of the, of the honeycomb. Sweeter than anything you might see in the candy shop, kids. That's how we should view God's word. That's the truth. Now, some of you in this room who maybe you're like me and you're older than 50 may remember something called a letter. Maybe you remember going to a mailbox and opening that mailbox and, and, there, and, and there arrives a letter from you from a special someone, right? Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Okay, so you open that mailbox and there's that letter. And what did you do when you, when you, when you got, when you, when you pull, when you open the letter? Did you just kind of speed read it, ball it up and throw it away? Well, I, I don't think so. I, I have a letter that I got from a special someone. And what, what, what do you do when you get that letter? Well, from a special someone, right? Maybe you smell it. That's what Bart says. Is there a little perfume in there, right? Um, anything else, Bart? Keep going. This is good. Wendy's sitting there shaking her head. Well, you, you, you carefully, maybe you look around on the, on the envelope. Maybe there's a little heart or two or something, you know, some symbol here. And you open your letter. And, and what do you do after you've, you've smelled it? Maybe you actually, if you're like me, maybe you quickly scan it to the very end. You know, how is this letter signed? Does it say, your friend? Or does it say, love? Or maybe there's something even better. Maybe something like, all my love, right? And in case you're, you're wondering, my, my, my letter here is signed, Beth. <laughs> I'm not the brightest, but I know better than to, you know, dig up some old, old letter or something like that. I don't think I have any of those anymore anyway. But this one's signed Beth and Grace. This, this one actually didn't come through the U.S. mail service. This one came to me by what we call IBOBs, uh, an international beast of burden. There, there was a time in which um, we were separated for a few weeks. Um, she had gone out to Dubai for Tim's birth and uh, I was still in Afghanistan, and so and I'd been there for a few weeks, and it was going to be a little bit longer before I was able to come out to see her. And somebody flew in from Dubai, and someone flew from Kabul to where I was and handed me this letter, and that meant a lot, you know. And so I looked, and there were these little squiggles, and that was Grace at two drawing me pictures. Um, and, and the first one, the biggest one, said, Dad, right? And so this, I, I read every paragraph and, 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 you know, maybe when you're in a relationship that's not quite as um, cemented as marriage, right, or maybe not even engaged, maybe you kind of read it several times and you, you wonder, like, you know, okay, what, what did he mean by this? He said, love in Christ. What, what, what did that mean anyway? Is that like a cowardly way of, of kind of saying he likes me? Or is he just trying to say this is just Christian love? Um, maybe, you know, you, you think about it, you, you meditate on it, right? A love letter. Sadly, uh, young people in, in the day of like immediate communication all the time, um, maybe we don't have as many of these anymore as we used to, 
But that's how I would propose we read God's word as a personal letter of love from someone who loves you to you. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, really? It's a little bit of a stretch, Pastor. I've read the Bible enough to know that it contains stories of bloody battles fought. How, how, how's that a love letter for me? It's got all this prophetic stuff that's hard to understand and plenty of instructions. And I feel conviction when I read this. How is that a love letter from God? Well, I would just say this to you. Um, you got to back up and see the big picture, right? The, the whole big plan of redemption, what God's saying. And let me just read to you a few verses that kind of trail through this. And I don't have, I think we have this on the slides. We don't have this in the notes. But I did send them out in an email on Friday or on Thursday. So you can go back to that. But in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. Picture that. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, very first human being. And if we, if we look back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we learn something else. So God created man in his own image. Think about that. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So God made us in his image to enjoy a relationship with him. And, and if, if you look at the very middle of the Bible, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. And, and here's the clue to how he does that. He gives you himself. That was his design from the beginning that we would delight in him, in that relationship and, and we will truly find joy in this life. Now, certainly, sin has torpedoed that relationship and that delight. But God didn't just leave us alone, right? Um, spinning on this globe in our wickedness, in our brokenness, headed for destruction. No, he intervened. He became human. He sent God the Son to become fully man and to die on the, on the cross for us to redeem us. To, to make atonement for our sins so that we might be cleansed and have that relationship with him. John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then 1 John 1, 3 just marvels at this. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The very end of the book, Revelation chapter 21, just, this is just a little snapshot of it. Revelation chapter 21, verse three and four says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is the end. This is what he's gonna do. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. 
Now that's personal. So we've talked about the condition. If you abide in my word, it means you read the Bible and you obey it. You seek to obey it. You may have to, I have to all the time, every day confess sin and, and just look back to Jesus, right? But treasure his words, treasure them so that you may treasure him. That's abiding. So let's talk about the promise Jesus makes. Well, the first promise is, you are truly my disciples. And this is important because not all who claim Jesus are his disciples or will prove to be truly his disciples. We read in John 6, verse 66. It's kind of a scary reference, right? Well, we read here that that after Jesus had said some hard things, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So these were people who were temporary disciples, but they didn't endure. They did not abide in him. Remember the parable of the sower. There are different kinds of, 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 of turf. And the sower went out and he, he scattered the seeds of the gospel. And Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, he said, and for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So we would all say, yeah, that's a disciple. We would probably maybe baptize them and celebrate their faith. But Jesus says, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. But all who abide in his word will truly be his disciples. And this, this promise of being a disciple goes into eternity. True disciples of Jesus have the eternal promise and hope, sure hope, of heaven. So the first promise that Jesus gives if we abide in his word is that we will be his disciples. And the second promise is that we will know the truth. He says, you will know the truth. Now, now this means more then just you will have the proper perspective on life or your mind will be open to understand reality, although it includes both of these things. But what it means is, ultimately, you will know Jesus with both your your mind and your heart. And sometimes there's a long distance between those two things. Well, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. He is the truth. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the whole message of Jesus, who he is, and, and, and his words, right? And especially his purpose, his, his death on the cross and his resurrection. This gospel of Jesus Christ is the truth, the ultimate truth that everyone needs. And it should not be seen or um, uh, uh, pined on or looked on as just milk, some people do this. Some, some Christians look at the gospel as, well, that's just like the entry point to the kingdom of God, and then we, we move on to higher things. And so we're thinking about other things than the gospel, because that's the baby stuff, right? I want the, I want the deeper stuff now. And that, that, that is a wrong mindset. The gospel should not be just seen as milk. It is the meat. And, and we could spend 
forever in our lives trying to fully understand aspects of the gospel um, that we'll never fully get, right? The, the, the mystery of the incarnation, the, the God-man, the, the truths that Jesus taught and, and lived, the fact that, that God himself would become human and then would die. That, I, someone explain that one to me, the eternal God actually dying. So there's mystery in the gospel, right, that we believe. The gospel, it under, it, it, the gospel is all about relationship with God. So it's the meat, and the gospel is the foundation and the center of our Christian existence. So when you come to understand and, and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, you, you, you realize that before you knew him, you were looking at everything through a glass darkly. But now you're seeing the world with clear 2020 vision. You understand what he's doing and why things look the way they do and what is going to happen. And the truth of the gospel frames out how we see our lives. What is, what is our purpose? Why, why do we suffer the effects of, of sin? And where do we find redemption? Where do we find forgiveness? Where do we find an entrance into that walk with God that we long for? We should think about the gospel of Jesus Christ daily. Well, do you believe that? Do you treasure his gospel? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you know the truth? And if you don't know the truth, not just things about the gospel here, but know the truth, I invite you today to call out to him and to acknowledge that that you need salvation. You need him. You need the truth dominating your mind and your heart and, and your life and ask him, for, ask him to rescue you. And he will come in and, and he will be your savior. And he will set you free. And that's the third promise that Jesus makes. The truth will set you free. Now what kind of freedom is this? Free from, free from what? Is it freedom from the, the tyranny of a social order that constricts our self-expression? No. According to Jesus... He will set us free from the bondage of our sin. We see here in verse 33 that that pride often keeps people from Jesus. Those in the crowd who were false disciples were too proud to be able to acknowledge or even see that they were in bondage. And so we see in verse 33, they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Well, I, I read this verse a couple times, and I thought, really? You, you don't remember the 400 years of slavery in Egypt? You say, we're Jews, we're sons of Abraham, we've never been in bondage. You, you don't remember, in more recent history, the Babylonian captivity, where because of your constant rejection of, of God, though he sent all these prophets and sought to woo you back to himself, You were just pulverized by the Babylonians and carted off as slaves into another country? You don't remember that? Or for those of you who are standing right now saying this, you you don't know that you are currently under Roman occupation? You are not a free country. There's no way that you can say, we are free, we've never been enslaved. But, But what Jesus is talking about here is not physical freedom. He's talking about freedom from guilt and the enslaving power of sin. 
And so Jesus says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, this word here, practice, is a participle. And it's in the the present active um, case here. All right, and I think that's important to understand that what Jesus is talking about is the continual practice of sin. Okay, not, 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 a, not a heart that's inclined towards Christ uh, and, and, then there's a, you know, and then there's a moment of, of sin and then quick repentance. He's talking about the continual practice of sin, what we might call habitual sin. And what he says is everyone who does that is a slave to sin. You know, we become what we behold. Someone told me that and I had to think about that a couple times. We become what we behold. So let's just imagine that we're beholding media constantly that programs us to be discontent with our spouse. We, guess what? We become what we behold. If you behold pornography and it becomes a habitual sin, this warps the mind. And you know what? That's not something that you can just compartmentalize. You you become that. You become a slave to that. Giving into the the sin of envy, let's say, for a moment, right? That's one of those sins that much of our culture is based on. Certainly our commercials are based on envy. Getting people to want what they don't have, what, what someone else has, right? And coveting that, envying that, feeling like I've got to keep up. Well, if we give into that habitually, you know what's going to happen? You'll become a, a slave of envy. Let's talk for a moment about deceit. Well, if we start telling white lies, we call them white lies as if they're not really a big deal, and we constantly give into that temptation, you know what happens? We become a liar. You become what you behold, what you let in, what you serve. And that's what Jesus is saying, is that, that your sin, if you keep giving into it, it will own you. A, a prime example of this from the Old Testament would be Samson. Very sad story from the, and sordid story from the book of Judges. But, but God called Samson to be a deliverer of Israel. And, 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 and he had, there was so much hope in Samson's early life. God gave him superhuman strength, but he compromised. He gave in to sin again and again. And after God helped him slay over a thousand Philistines and then miraculously provided water for him, he, he went out right away and messed around with the prostitute. And, and he eventually fell under wicked Delilah's spell and he ended up with his head shaved and his strength gone, his eyes, eyes gouged out and, and grinding a mill in a Philistine prison. He became what he beheld. And instead of beholding God, he was, he was, he was chasing after his, his um, lustful desires, right? And his pride, the pride of life. Remember this. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. And it will always keep you longer than you want to stay. And it will cost you more than you want to pay. 
But like the, the proud Jews who had forgotten that they were in bondage, we don't like to acknowledge our own bondage to sin. And so the alcoholic says, I can quit any time, right? The addict says, I'll quit tomorrow. John Calvin said, the greater the mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol free will. Romans chapter 6 verse 16 says, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So in this next verse, Jesus describes the difference between being a slave to sin or being free in him with this analogy. He says in verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. And so what we see here is a, a picture of slavery at this point in history, which was actually quite different from the, the more wicked slavery that was practiced in our own nation just 150 years ago that was based on racism, chattel slavery, right? Here, in, in Jesus' day, you could have a household that was wealthy where you had others who had actually sold themselves into servanthood because of their own financial loss. And so it was a contractual kind of arrangement where you had slavery but for you were a servant, maybe most of your life, but you had the, the hope and the ability to actually pay that debt off and to become free if you wanted to. But while a, a servant or a slave worked in the house, they did not have the security or the right as sons. Now, now sons obviously have permanent status in the family. But the son, that's Jesus, he has the, the right and the, the power to give the privilege of sonship to us. And so through faith, which requires humility and repentance, but through faith, he transforms us from slaves of sin to sons of the living God. And so Jesus says, if the son sets you free, verse 36, you will be free indeed. And we sung about this freedom, right? And it's freedom from sin. True freedom is spiritual freedom. D.A. Carson writes, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. You see, when Jesus saves us, he does heart surgery on us. He gives us a new heart within that has an inclination, a deep inclination to please him. And, and so Christian, you are free from the bondage of sin. You have that new heart that has the Holy Spirit living in it, right? And so he gives you the power to overcome temptation. And so brothers, this means that if you're at the beach or at the gym and you see a beautiful woman, you don't have to give in to your fleshly lust. We still have, we still are clothed in flesh. We still have fleshly impulses, right? And just because th there's a nanosecond of fleshly impulse does not mean you have to give in to that. You, you have the freedom to ask the Heavenly Father for help and, and to stop and to even pray for that precious soul made in the image of God and to pray that she would know him too instead of lusting after her body. Likewise, sisters, maybe you meet a man somewhere who uh, the vibes you're getting 
from him, the, the attention you're getting make, makes, you, makes you think, you know, this would be a whole lot better trade than that lug back at home. And, and, and you, have the, you have the free, you don't have to give in to fantasizing about being with that man. The Spirit can give you the, the power to recognize that this is, a, this is a man made in God's image. Maybe he, need, maybe he has Christ, maybe he doesn't have Christ, but to pray for him as a, as a person instead of lusting after him. Kids, this means that when your brother or your sister gets something special and you're tempted to say, what about me? That's not fair. You, you don't have to give in to that sin of envy. You know, Jesus gives you the power to, to put others first and to actually be happy for that person instead of being envious. Spiritual freedom means that when you see the forbidden fruit hanging low on a branch, you don't have to reach out and take it. The, the devil might tell you, you can't resist, so go ahead and enjoy. But spiritual freedom means you don't have to give in to it. You don't have to take it. You can look to Jesus and you can enjoy worshiping him instead. You can turn that moment of temptation into a moment of, of victory in Jesus. Pastor Matt Carter writes, real freedom is the ability to say no to the fleeting pleasures of sin and to hold out for the fulfilling joy that comes in Christ. Let me just say, in the moment your flesh may say, I need this to be happy. And, 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 and you, need, you, you need to hold out, but there is a deep joy that comes. He writes, genuine freedom is the ability to say no to anything that's going to hinder the enjoyment of Christ. The Word of God, the Bible, the truth of Jesus sets us free from sin to enjoy God. It removes the chains of sin and gives us the freedom of a son. As we persevere in the Word of God, we will, Jesus promises, understand more about Him, and we will be increasingly liberated from the sin that shackles us to joylessness, end quote. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called, And Can It Be That I Should Gain, or at least that's the first line of the hymn. And we, we don't sing that a lot anymore, but verse four describes freedom. He writes, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Let's bow our heads with that in mind as we prepare for communion. And I'd like to invite our deacons to come forth as I, as I pray. And we will prepare, we'll move from my prayer into a time of reflection and preparation so that we may take communion, the Lord's table, in a, in a worthy manner. And let me encourage you, Christian, if there's anything right now inside that's, that, that's, that's keeping you that's, that's, that's hindering that joyful walk with him. Now is the moment to confess it and, and to look back to Jesus and to abide. And if you don't know Jesus, if you've never truly put your faith in him, we ask you just to refrain from taking communion. This is for Christians.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your spirit in us. Thank you for the gift of new life. And we say that we do depend on you. We are weak, but you are strong. We thank you for the gift of the gospel. And we cry out right now that we want to hold on to you and never let you go. Help us, Lord, to do that today and this week. And Lord, if there are things that we've given into that, that, have, that have weakened our, our, the grip of our grasp on Christ, Lord, we, we thank you that it's not just all in us, but that he is holding us fast if we're his. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for those things and we, we choose to forsake them because Christ is worthy. I pray in his name, amen.